Well, here we are at the Buddha Centre Online podcast, and usually it's Chandradasa who's introducing the podcast and inviting someone interesting to talk to about something that's going on in their work or a life or a retreat or a book or a teaching. But today the tables are turned. <laughs> My name is Dharma Mega. I'm sort of one of the Tree Ratna book people. And today I'm coming in to introduce Chandradasa who not only is very, very busy with Buddhist Center Online and Free Buddhist Audio and Dhamma Chakra that's behind it, but somehow in his spare time, he's managed to write a book which is just released last week. So welcome, Chandradasa. Thank you very much, Dhamma What a strange but lovely experience to be interviewed. I mean, this podcast has been sort of off air for a while and we're just putting together new episodes for a kind of more curated new season now that we're out of the pandemic. So it's very interesting to be the sort of inadvertent first guest for you from Windrush Publications. It's, it's great to it's great to be here on our podcast. Yeah, it's really, really good. People listening to this won't be able to see you, but I can see you and it feels like a long time since we've hung out together. Yeah. And uh, wow, so you've written yes. a book. Buddhism for teens. Yes, Buddhism for teens. But it's surprising to find myself having written a book. It's a bit like a dream. I don't know. I mean, you're a publisher and an editor and a very talented person all around. So I'm assuming you know the bit of when you do something in the creative field. There is a sort of dreamlike aspect to it where you are taking part in something. You're obviously very active in it because you're doing it, but it doesn't quite feel like that. It feels a bit like you're being written or something. So I'm definitely carrying that sense a little bit. And it's slightly surreal that the book is a real physical object and I've got it in my hand and... People have read it and nobody's written on Amazon yet saying, this is terrible, what are you doing? So it's a strange place to be right at the start of having the book out there, but it feels great, actually. I'm really happy with how it worked out. Hey, congratulations. It's a big thing thank to, you. to write thank a book. You. How did it come about? You say you sort of feel a bit like you've been on the other end of a string. like That's right, yeah. How did it happen? No, I, I didn't initiate it at all. I mean, in a way, the last two years have been a bit of a blur of work for me, mostly related to the pandemic. Some of it's been in this very space. And I received an email, I think it was in June or July, maybe. Yeah, June last year from a publisher. And to be honest, I thought it was spam. A Nigerian prince has left me $50 million and all I need to do is send my bank account. I sort of thought this must be one of these things where it's like, you know, if you write off and pay us $500, we'll publish your book or something. And it turned out not to be. They were more persistent and wrote sometime later saying, did you did you get our email? So I'm glad I actually finally kind of engaged. It was a press or a publishing company called Callisto Media, and they have an imprint, Rockridge Press, and they're what's known as a data-driven publishing company. So for people who might not know what that means, largely it means they focus very, very intensively on Amazon sales figures, Amazon being for better, for worse, sometimes worse, the seat of so much modern publishing. And they only commission titles that they've got a very strong data set says will sell. So they wrote to me saying, hey, we discovered your blog, which is about poetry and Buddhism and technology, and very occasional because I don't have very much time. They discovered this blog with my writing on it and then had obviously tracked me down through to Buddhist Centre Online particularly. The researchers had sort of written a report and they were contacting to say, would I have a conversation about a book? It definitely wasn't commissioning a book at that point. 
there was quite an extensive process over maybe about a month of regular interaction and conversation. They were really lovely to work with, actually, from the off. Well, super professional, but also clearly really engaged. And mm-hmm. publishing books around spirituality and mindfulness and things is not completely new to them, but they're mostly in the past. It's been like 10 days of the keto diet or something, you know, has been their main staple. And they've dipped their toes in the water of mindfulness and Buddhism before, and they wanted to do a bigger push. So they pitched a few titles at me and we had a bunch of conversations. One of them I didn't want to do, but I did recommend somebody else in Triratna, Bodhi Paksha, who runs Wildmind. He wrote that book, so that was great. In the end, they came back to me and said, we've got this other title, Buddhism for Teens, and we wonder about that. And I think at first I wasn't quite sure, but as soon as we began to talk about it and I saw the very clear structure that they'd laid out in their proposal, I really liked it as an idea and began to resonate with it immediately. And we had some really lovely conversations about that. And suddenly it was like, okay, go write this book. And they work fast. My goodness, do they work fast. Mm-hmm. So I had to write the book in about six weeks with another couple of weeks spread out for editing. Wow working with two different editors. So, you know, the book was written quite intensively between July and August, and then the editing process went on in fits and starts all the way through till January of this year. And now it's just been published. So Mm -hmm. it's like a crash course in publishing and Mm -hmm. modern editorial process, but I had a great time doing it. I'm curious about, I mean, I can completely see why they would get hold of you for a book on Buddhism. And obviously you've got sort of contemporary interests, both in like means of communication, poetry and Buddhism, of course, itself. But uh, you're not a teenager. And, uh, <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> as far as I know, you don't. You, you haven't spawned any teenagers. That's right. I probably still act like a teenager. Have the emotional age of a teenager or something. I don't know. So is the question why me? <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, what did you draw on to to try and write? The book is aimed at people aged twelve to sixteen, kind of thing. So how did you zone in on on a, a way of communicating or a way of presenting? Mm. Well, first of all, one of the really good things about working with Callisto, and I think probably it's essential if they want to work that way where they turn out the books so quickly, they give you a very, very well-formed structure and the conversations you have around going forward. In a way, you're given lots of space to do what you want within a very clearly defined structure. So I didn't need to do that much work to get my own head around could I connect with the material and that was really useful. In terms of it being specifically for younger humans, I think just I've always wanted to write for kids. I've written for kids before, usually younger kids than teenagers. So it was the kind of writing that mattered most to me, I think, when I was growing up and then even as an adult. Mm. I love particularly someone like Ursula Le Guin, for example, who's writing, pioneering across genres in that way, where in one sense she's writing for children and teenagers. In another sense, she's writing for grown-ups and lots of grown-ups read her books. And there was a kind of sweet spot around being a teenager where I think I've got a very strong memory of that as being formative in my own spiritual life, where Mm. you know consciousness is beginning to bloom and questions are coming up and you're aware of your conditions in a way that you weren't before. And... All of that really sort of flowered for me when I thought about Buddhism. I got involved with Buddhism when I was in my very early 20s, 20, 21, and didn't really feel that far from being a a teenager at that point. And I was just really taken up with the idea of, you've got this audience, and to be honest, they probably don't trust you. They probably think 
think, you know, who is this guy? Why are we doing this? And my own experience of doing school visits as a Buddhist teacher, I suppose, and having younger people come along to the little local Buddhist center that I helped set up and run is that there's just a kind of beautiful space of engagement there. People are wide open and also maybe a little bit concerned about somebody turning up who thinks they know the answer. And as soon as I, I began to have conversations about taking this on, it became clear that they really wanted somebody who could not try and be cool and not not try and talk down to kids or teenagers and just like be themselves, but hopefully bring alive a sense of excitement and possibility. In a way, I think you can write to that and not worry too much about the prospective audience. I had lots of help making sure that the final text was age appropriate in various ways. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in the podcast, but lots of clear guidelines as well about how to address a teen audience in America in 2022, which is not my native audience. So it's not my own demographic. So I found it remarkably easy. And well, in terms of things like not having children myself or not being a parent, I've come from a very large family. I've got lots of nibblings, as we like to call them these days, both from my family and from friends who've got kids. And I suppose I've always had children of all ages in my life as a very important part of it. And it was helpful to just address them. Like I dedicated the book to all of the maybe 15, 16 nibblings to friends and family. And I did have them in mind when I was writing. I was like, well, how would I talk about what I'm doing with my life? Which probably looks a bit mad to someone who's a teenager. They're like, you've got this wacky name and you know, yeah. you're doing this thing that looks religious. So I guess it'll be up to people reading it to see did I manage to hit the right tones and things. But so far, the feedback from parents particularly has been really strong. And it's been lovely having friends here read it with their teen children mm. and some of the amazon early amazon reviews were written by teenagers masquerading as their parents <laughs> on amazon so that's been that's been really good mm. i mean when i was reading it i had two threads kept going through my mind the one was like wow i really wish i'd had this book to read when i was a, a teenager i mean we can get into some of the whys of it but it's really really got a strong emphasis on emotional positivity confidence a sort of quite realistic invitation, whoever you are and whatever's going on to engage with it, very practical. You basically start with a sort of meta, a confidence, kindness to yourself and build from there in all sorts of things. So the first sort of section of it is so-called best emotional life. Yeah. So that was one thing I just thought, oh, wow, you know, I really wish I'd had that because <laughs> I, I didn't. And um, the other part was really was I was going through the exercises in particular. I was just thinking a lot about not only for teenagers, but actually lots of people could be helped with those exercises. They're just very, very grounded and practical and sort of well-designed and accessible. And yet they carry, you know, they carry this thread of the beginnings or the roots or the seeds, if you like, of how those practices could unfold and do unfold through the book as well. Maybe it's worth saying a little bit about what's in the book. You've got four areas, if you like, starting with your best emotional life. What else is in there in terms of areas? Yeah, that was one of the early conversations that we spent some time on. They had a structure and in the end we did stick to it. Actually, funnily enough, one of the editors got slightly wobbly about that later on and there was a bit of a conversation about maybe revamping the order of the chapters and some of the exercises and it was good in a way to go into all that. In the end, we essentially reverted to what was there, but it was good to confirm it. And they wanted to start with the emotions because it's teenagers, right? So in a way, most Buddhist path evocations, whether it's books or courses, would probably, I think, start with the breath and mindfulness as a kind of samatha 
basis for practice in a very traditional way. Mm. So it was quite interesting that they decided to do the mind later, the body later than the emotions. So we started with the emotions. Your best emotional life is the name of that chapter. Being in your body is the second chapter. And again, I guess when you think about teenagers, that's a prime area of quite often painful emotion, anxiety, concern. And these days, of course, with the internet, there's so much more awareness of the issue. It's not even just awareness of your own experience of the problems or the questions, but there's so much hypervigilance about it. And the third chapter is called Making a World with Your Mind. And the fourth is called Giving Your Gifts to the Universe. So, you know, they wanted to do emotions, body, mind, and then your relationship to the wider world and society. And that little arc does come from the data. Maybe it sounds a bit ghastly for people with a very romantic sense of book publishing or book reading, but the data suggested a market and the market suggested an approach. And then, you know, somehow miraculously, the approach suggested me. So it's like there's this structure. And actually, I found it quite easy to slip into it. It did match my own experience of teaching. And to your point about a lot of the exercises and activities being kind of not really just for teenagers. That is how I wanted to do it. I didn't really want to try and write down to the audience. And actually most, I'd say 75% of the exercises and activities are at least based in part on notes for classes done over years at our local tiny little Buddha center that if there's only a few of you in town, you're doing an awful lot of introductory courses and regular courses. And luckily for me, I'd kept all the notes. So there was a lot of sifting to do and... Yeah, there was a particular audience to adapt all that material for, but it felt quite natural in a way just to treat the audience as if they're a fully fledged mind who wants to find out about this thing called Buddhism and the approach to life and reality that the Dharma offers. Yeah, I found it really encouraging to write the book and to have this sense of a structure that would walk people through a path without any sense of trying to make them into Buddhists or any of that stuff. You can offer an open-handed gift and in there fact, you, you have a uh, section called Make Up Your Own Religion, right? <laughs> That's right, Invent Your Own Religion, which is an, an exercise I made up for, I guess, grown-ups here in Portsmouth in New Hampshire. We had a Buddhist centre a number of years ago and it effectively burned down. The building next to it burned down and our, mm. our Buddhist centre got ruined and we were homeless for a while. And we ended up in a really drafty old New England church, disused church, long disused. It was a kind of community media project mm. and fantastic old collaborate building with a bell tower and all the rest of it in new england it was definitely let's do the show right here we had to build the shrine and take down the shrine every week in this room that we rented for not that much money and you know you're nodding away i'm sure you've done this there was something great about just showing up every week and inventing what is it we are doing as a community and trying to very much that approach of this is not a center you're not coming to be taught it's not like that there was a lot of playfulness, I think, and creativity went on amongst the people who were coming to practice together on a Sunday morning, good Presbyterian time of the week, <laughs> and um, <laughs> why fight your conditioning? That's what was there. I remember making that exercise up, invent your own religion, and people got so animated about it, feeling free to invite people to really take responsibility for the path in a way. We're all making this up as we go along to some extent, so inviting people into that space was great. It's interesting that you've frame it in that way that we're making this up as you go along. I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about what's in the book in terms of content, but in terms of forms, aside from a narrative that takes you through these areas, you have stories, you have led meditations, you have kind of reflection exercises, and the stories are particularly interesting. So mm. quite a lot of the stories are 
stories from the Pali Canon, usually with the Buddha or other characters from the Pali Canon. So stories that Buddhists would recognize as Buddhist stories, but you've sometimes quite radically rewritten them. So sometimes the Buddha appears as a, it's not clear whether it's a girl or a young woman who's called the stranger for example, who floats in and out of some of these stories being somewhat enigmatic and definitely wise. And a lot of the other stories are sort of written in a just very contemporary idiom. I wonder, before we talk about that, whether you'd be willing to read a bit of one of these. And I'm, I'm thinking about Arrow in the Eye. What do you think? Sure. For you kids at home, leafing through the actual paper book, it's page 37. An Arrow in the Eye. Since he was eight, Mal had been trying to learn facts about everything. He'd read every book he could find with titles like Ask Me Why and Secrets of the Universe. He borrowed old encyclopedias from the library. Wikipedia was his favourite website. One day, he thought, I'm going to have all the answers. By the time he was 14, Mal was stuffed full of facts. If there was a quiz or trivia game to be played, you'd want him on your side. He ignored all the other things he might do, learning to cook or code, exercise and sports, hanging out with kids from his class. Instead, Mal spent more and more time at his computer looking stuff up. One day, a new teacher appeared in school. She was a replacement for Miss Cullen, who was off for six weeks having a baby. Mal had enjoyed Miss Cullen's philosophy class, though he liked his facts better. Miss Sabasava arrived. On her first day, she got them to walk around outside, slowly and carefully, for ten whole minutes. She asked them to think about their bodies, feel their feet on the ground, follow their breath in and out. Back in the classroom, she had them sit and do Buddhist meditation instead of talking. It drove Mal crazy. He wasn't learning anything. After a few weeks, Mal cracked. He stayed behind after class. Miss Sabasaba didn't seem surprised. Hi, Mal, isn't it? How can I help you? Why are you making us do all this? It's not teaching us anything. Miss Sabasaba looked at him curiously. Okay, what would you like to know? Mal was flummoxed. Well, um, the answers to questions like, how did we get here? Is space never ending? What happens after we die? She smiled at him, and now he felt uncertain. Imagine someone fired a poison arrow at you, Mal, and it hit you right in the eye. What would you want to do? Mal was shocked. Whoa, pull it out, I guess. Then go to the emergency room. Exactly. Would you say, before I pull out this arrow, I want to know what it's made of, what colour it is, the name of the person who assembled it at the factory, and their parents' names? I want to know how well it flies, what the poison's made of? Of course not, I'd bleed to death, Mal protested. Well then, Miss Sabazava finished. As the bell rang for the next class, perhaps you need a different kind of learning, Mal. If you want to be happy, having answers isn't everything. She smiled again and left him standing there. It was a mic drop. Mal felt his mind opening up like a starfish. How weird. I haven't actually read any of the book out loud to anyone. Before, so that's an interesting experience. <laughs> now we've all had a bedtime story. <laughs> you, you've taken, I suppose, license with these stories to really alter their characters, their dialogue, in order to make what is hopefully the same point made in the suttas about the second arrow 
and puncher and why did you do it the way you did? And what gives you the right young man to just muck about with the cities? You know what I mean? It's tradition. That's right. Yeah, no, I do know what you mean. I mean, I think that's a set of nested boxes worth of questions there. So when I was talking with the publisher about what they were looking for, they had a couple of really clear instructions other than the structure of the book. So one was that they wanted it to be contemporary and they didn't want you to use other people's translations of classic Buddhist stories. They wanted it effectively to be original work, which is an interesting point in itself. They also had this really, really, really clear, I think very good, diversity and inclusion policy that you had to bear in mind when writing. Mm. And so there were a couple of just very practical things to look at if you say yes to writing this book. One is you're going to have to know the stories well enough to do some sort of faithful re-rendering of them without, I think, trying to be original. That definitely wasn't the point, was to try and be original. It was to try and, in a way, relocate and recast actually quite faithful versions, I can assure you. If you go back and look at the Chula Malunkivara Sutta or the Salata Sutta that are both referenced in that and sort of cheeky use of people's names like Mal from Malunkivara and Sabsava from the Sabasava Sutta itself. What I did was try and get a real handle on the dynamic going on between the characters interacting and be as faithful to that as I could, including effectively writing versions in English of the dialogue as translated by, you know, the various different translations that I looked at. And then in a way, once the core was there that had that sort of fidelity saying, well, okay, what's important and integral to the story in terms of scene and what isn't? And then that's where the diversity inclusion stuff came in, because it was like the Buddhist tradition does well on some aspects of diversity, but not so much on gender. There aren't that many scriptures or texts or, you know, empowerments or whatever it is that are women talking to women or women teaching men or beings of non-specific gender doing anything other than maybe yakshas and (laughs) things like that. So it was very interesting to think about that and try and drop down into a place where, okay, the dynamic of the teaching and the truth of the Dharma is really important. And it does matter how you set them. It's not that you could just set them any old way you like. And sort of testing and playing with different settings until I got something that felt like it was effective and at the very least brought out what was there in the sutta and hopefully enhanced it in terms of accessibility for people because it's modern and it's using language and settings that teenagers would be familiar with. In that kind of case, it was quite interesting, I think, because when the Buddha is addressing a disciple, for example, or somebody, a Brahmin coming to catch the Buddha out, there is a particular dynamic there. And I tried to make sure that when there was a a relationship in the story, it had a kind of core element of the dynamic that was there in the original text. So the Buddha is sometimes a bit stern. The Buddha tends to not suffer fools. Patient, but not you're not going to get humoured. And there's a kind of element where Ms. Sabasava, and that is just like, you know, she's got Mal's number before he opens his mouth. The Buddha often is in that role. And the Buddha, of course, is a a literary character for us. We're reading the Buddha through scripture and through texts that are, you know, if we just take the tradition literally, written down hundreds of years after the original interaction. So it's all literature. And I think I was really interested in that aspect where the Buddha, in a way, is a bit like, well, a character from the Odyssey or something, or, Mm. or Homer himself. I was reading this recent translation of Homer by Emily Wilson, who writes a fantastic introduction about the role that gender has played in the tradition of translating the classics, the kind of Mm -hmm. scriptures of our Western secular, poetic secular tradition, and the distortions in that, as well as the creativity in it and the invention 
I was kind of aware that in a way the Buddha is that kind of character, is a kind of Homeric character. Homer might well have been more than one person. Mm. You know, it's all an oral tradition being written down. Mm. And there's that sense to the Buddha as a character, I think, when you really dig into the texts. And I think the other thing was I was aware of something like the Karaniya Metta Sutta where, you know, that advice to relate to all beings as if they're your children. Well, mm. that gives you quite a bit of creative leverage when it comes to exploring parent-child relationships. I remember actually something, there's an order member, some people may know, called Padma Shuri, mm. who has been in Cambridge in England for a long time. And I lived in Cambridge for a decade or more. And I remember Padma Shuri speaking in a talk about having decided not to have children of her own. And the people that she was helping train for Buddhist ordination being like her children mm. and taking that as a kind of poetic paradigm for her life. And it was really inspiring to listen to. I remember at the time thinking, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I remembered Padmashuri thinking about some of these recastings where it was like, definitely don't take liberties with the intention of the sutta, but actually the gender of the characters has got absolutely nothing to do with the wisdom of the Dharma. So Mm -hmm. it felt quite liberating in a way Mm -hmm. to get to play in that way. And yeah, I appreciate for some people that feels like a very risky thing to do. And I think it's definitely something to do with a sense of some trepidation and maybe, you know, hopefully a sense of some responsibility, but... I really enjoyed it and it was quite it was quite lovely in a way just to try and make myself get under the skin of these stories and say, well, what are they really trying to do rather than just passing them on as scripture, which has its own value. Actually, this book is not that book. There are lots of books that do that really well, but this required something else and it just felt like a very practical task. How can I do that? Yeah. And they were really sportive as publishers. We did talk through quite a lot the approach particularly around gender and representation of gender. And yeah, I found it again really freeing just to be trusted to do that. Mm. Uh, so it was, mm. it was great. And it's not just gender. It's also, you know, the names are often conspicuously sort of non-Anglo names. And it's not only gender in relation to embodiment. It's also whether it's able-bodiedness, you sort of just incorporate in the stories and the exercises, like, oh, if you're in a wheelchair, do, you know, you can, you can do this or lie down in this way, or, you know, you just bring out the possibilities or just assume that you're speaking to a range of people might be reading what you're writing and that they would feel included in the options for how to do say one of these exercises very strong yeah yeah it was it was a really strong experience to do it and God, there's so many things that i could talk about with this one was i think again there was just an objective need for it right it's there in the contract <laughs> that you've signed already that's quite helpful in a way because it's just like there's something has to be achieved if you can do it and it felt very quickly like a sort of ethical practice when I was writing it. I was or an awareness practice, but there was an ethical edge to it. I suppose one aspect is that, you know, as practitioners in any community, I'm sure, but in the community I'm in, when you're in, which is Tri Ratna, we quite often use the phrase, all beings, may all beings be well. And that definitely sort of resonated and rang like a bell for me, like all beings, all beings. If you're going to write a book about Buddhism, that is your duty, is to write a book for all beings. And I'm absolutely not interested in an ideological conversation about that from either side of, of whatever culture war happens to be going on at the time. It was more just like, okay, people have asked me to do something and I believe in the welfare of all beings enough to take it on. So it felt like a really good practice. And I noticed my own resistance and my own confusion and where I had to learn and, and 
grow up and talk to people and get some advice and have people gently say, no, that's not quite right. I found that really helpful. And of course, in a way, teenagers are at the cutting edge of that cultural shift that's going on. So we've got a lot to learn as adults from them. What for us is like a learned language is the first language for them. It's just completely natural. And really taking that seriously and feeling a responsibility to take that seriously. I think the other thing was I'm good friends with Paramananda, who's a teacher. We've just finished an online retreat with Paramananda and Bodhi Leela from West London. And Paramananda has been working with me in various ways for the best part of 25 years. And through the time I've known him, he's been going blind to the point now where he's got very little sight left. And it's been very moving in a way to try and translate Paramanda's teaching into an online-only context during the pandemic and work with him as someone who's going to need some help to set up the technical side of it. And Paramanda, in his teaching these days, tends to talk about his own growing awareness of how much of our language is sighted. Mm. Uh, S-I-G-H-T-E-D it assumes cited metaphor and he's not bringing this up as a criticism he's not saying you shouldn't do that he's just saying he's become aware of someone losing his eyes that suddenly when you talk about oh see things more clearly in your meditation or we're trying to see the nature of reality that's beginning to change for him like what does that mean just the invitation to be aware of that and to be curious about it and to again take it seriously as something that will help your exposition of the Dharma if you're aware of it. Mm. I found that really personally helpful. And I was particularly aware of that metaphor and obviously of the degree to which people can walk, for instance, if you're doing what we would call a walking meditation. Well, actually, Mm. a walking meditation is exclusive. Again, I don't mean that language to be blamey. Nobody's doing something wrong. It's more just, oh, suddenly you're aware of people in wheelchairs. They don't talk about going for a walk. So it's quite interesting talking about going for a roll and doing that kind of awareness practice on the move, but not walking and again with the senses the five senses particularly aware of teenagers their five senses are coming into razor sharpness Mm. but for some of them not right and going back to Paramananda I was remembering the character of Tiresias who's a kind of classic figure and Tiresias is the old blind seer and interestingly he's struck blind in the story because he changes gender a couple of times by annoying either Zeus or Hera and Paramand, in a way, reminds me a bit of, of Tiresias, the, the, the blind seer, reciting poetry from memory and <laughs> that becoming an oral tradition because he doesn't always remember it right kind of thing. <laughs> and Ted Hughes, the English poet, talks about Tiresias having insight, which, of course, is a Buddhist word that we trade all the time. And he talks about this beautiful phrase of was it his inner eye opened like a night scope. Mm. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. Mm. Again, if you're writing a meditation for anyone, but in this case for teenagers, or you're writing an activity that's designed to help them drop down into their own awareness or their own possibilities for awareness, having it be about your inner eye opening like a night scope leaves all the extraneous things out. I don't care how many senses people have or how they're moving. It's something else. So I, I find it really rewarding practice actually having to be aware in that way. And I'm sure I made mistakes. I'm sure people will no doubt have more awareness than me or pick up something that could have been done better. But it felt like a step for me in my own practice just to be more aware in Mm. that way. Mm. You saying that the Dharma or Buddhist teachings are for all beings makes a lot of sense to me having read the book. And there's this really lovely balance that I think you strike in this quite strong inclusivity in the ways that we've just been talking about. And embodiment, you know, groundedness, embodiment, kindness to the body that you're in, being situated, being situated in your relationships. And then also this, 
not even acceptance, this presupposition that we have these minds that transcend our current state, you know, so there's quite a lot around, say, taking responsibility for the mind. And then there's something else, which is much, much vaster, if you like, and more expansive. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to read the Dragonfire story, which comes sort of right towards the end of the book. If we go back to what we were saying, there's your best emotional life, being in your body, making a world with your mind. And then the last section is giving your gifts to the universe. You know, it's, it's a very expansive section and this is one of the key moments in that section before i read this just because we may not get to is the word counts for each section of this book were truly brutal (laughs) 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 any editors out there are probably relishing this but there are 50 sections of the book give or take there's a few more but it's essentially 50 stories activities and meditations and that was in itself like a whole journey 500 words for stories, 400 words for meditations, 400 words for activities. If you've ever led a meditation and you're listening to this, I invite you to sit down and write out your instructions. And I guarantee by the time you've got to the first stage, you're at 700 words. (laughs) So it was an amazing challenge, but a really great one, actually, to have to be so pared back. And in a way that did really encourage you to come back to the image, which is where this story begins. So this is Dragonfire. Her strongest memory, rafts on fire, floating downriver in the infinite ink-black night, sparks rising and passing beyond sight into the dark, welcoming sky. Cassie stood on the bank, watching. One week before, the stranger had started coming to her dreams. She simply wandered into Cassie's mind every evening, shared a meal, hung out. When Cassie woke, it felt as if they'd been talking all night about life, about wisdom. That was Cassie's main deal. She wanted people to know she was smart, to recognise her as a born leader. She would follow no one. After these intense dream meetings, Cassie could feel her mind wanting to bloom and burst into day with new ideas. She wanted to tell her sisters, but something held her back. These thoughts that she was on fire with might not be her own, and that scorched her. She had been determined her whole life to be an original thinker. Cassie the cleverest, who burns brightest of all. In some ways, she wasn't wrong. She and her sisters were the leaders of the future, and they scorned the leaders now, who burned with pride in all the wrong ways. We know best. We're the holders of truth. We will keep you safe. Only, the world that resulted did not seem true to her. Violence was never far away. People who mattered were ignored. Wealth was not shared evenly. The rules seemed stacked against any change. Cassie felt conflicted. She could take part in all that if she chose to, yet she burned differently. She lay down, smouldering in the dark. The stranger was there again, walking in the yard outside. Cassie followed her beneath a bright moon. She saw the stranger go into a woodshed. Cassie went to the window. Inside, the stranger was sitting perfectly quiet, perfectly still. Her eyes were closed, and it seemed that she breathed out night itself. 
Suddenly, a great dragon uncoiled itself from around the inside walls. It had been there all along, like part of the fabric of the place. Cassie watched, mesmerised, horrified, unable to move as it rose up around the stranger and breathed, not night, but fire. Yet when the flames died down, the dragon was gone. The stranger faced Cassie, her eyes open, unharmed. Cassie, the dragon is absorbed. Bring everything you know. We'll send it on fire shrines down the river. Let this be your offering to the future. If you want to lead, learn how to be uncertain. Later, Cassie told her sisters about her dreams, the stranger, the dragon, and the rafts. Then she listened to them carefully. They would all lead one day. They were getting ready. (laughs) It's enormously hopeful and full, a full vision. There's that word again, a full Mm. image of what we all are, what we each are, what we can offer. Yeah. I mean, one thing that people listening should know is that after each story, there are usually three, sometimes two, three, what I call think points. Mm. And again, this was part of the non-optional aspect of the book was lots of creative freedom to do that kind of thing with a traditional Dharma story, but also unpacking it, but not in a way that is leading. So usually there's a little moral. Here's the moral Mm. of the story, as it were, but keeping that open and then some questions. And this was an interesting one because the questions are quite specific. So one of the questions is, some people are quite sure of themselves. Some are very unsure. Where do you fall on the spectrum? And then there's another question about curiosity. But the third question, we actually had a big discussion about to keep it in the book, which was, if you could set fire to three ideas, which would you choose and why? (laughs) And I understand why they questioned it because it's not specific and it's not necessarily grounded. But I had a bit of a sense that teenagers would know what that means, want to set fire to ideas. Mm. And I think with that particular story, it's one of my favourite Dharma images. I remember the first time I heard the story of Kashyapa, the fire worshipper. And it's not a very big story. It's not one that usually gets shared very much. But there was something about the scene at the end where the people who worshipped fire come over to the Buddha's camp and set their fire shrines alight and then push them down the river. Just like an amazing image. What an amazing image. And actually, I think the narrative doesn't matter as much as the image there. The image itself is just burning away through millennia, just mm. doing something. And mm. it did something in my wee psyche when I, when I yeah. saw it. And I've written poems about it. I wrote a poem about my father who died when I was 11. And that was one of the first poems I remember writing about his death, sort of explicitly, was using that image I think I had a dream where my father and I were walking into a room and there was a lighted candle. And it felt like that scene in the story of Kashyapa, the fire worshipper, and his brothers. Mm -hmm. It was a nice twist to make it Cassie and her sisters. And yeah, is the stranger the Buddha? Is the stranger not the Buddha? I don't think it really matters in a way. I think there's something, hopefully, that's authentic in that. But I think maybe in terms of the spaciousness of it, Again, working with 500 words is tough, so maybe this is where having a background in poetry helps, because I think if you try and do a linear telling of a tale with 500 words, you just run out of road quite quickly. And there was something about trying to write the whole book around really respecting the imaginations of of the audience and 
their ability to leap and to apprehend things and yeah, whether it's dreams or metaphors or images, trying to make the whole thing about an experience that you can actually have of liberation in mm-hmm. lots of small ways, maybe some big ways in your life. Yeah, the whole thing just resonating with that sense of liberation, that there is a far greater reality and it doesn't have to be mystical and doesn't even have to be spiritual in some religious sense to be awesome. Just being invited into a place of liberation or the possibility of that in every moment. That's mattered to me as a practitioner over the years and in a way matters to me much more now than I think it did when I was still learning the forms of Buddhism and taking on a particular community and its ways. The taste of freedom, as Sangra actually calls it, that sense, just trying to make sure everything was imbued with that. So that particular story was probably one of my favourite things to write in the book. I felt like I'd done it justice in terms of the image itself and hopefully kept it open, you know, kept it as an open image. Mm. I think there's something very lovely about, I suppose, honouring the emergence, whether it's through dreams or some story that you've heard or reading something that first gives one a sort of imprint of something liberating. I was just thinking for myself, there was an image for me that I encountered when I was maybe 13 or 14 in a sort of similar way that has basically shaped the rest of my life. I mean, there are other things that have shaped my life as well, but without that image, you know, my life wouldn't look the way it does. I think it's really important to honour the fact that those images do emerge really strongly, and particularly in one's teenage years, and can and should be remembered and held on to. Whether or not you can do that at that age or if it's later on in life that you come back to those images, they accompany. Yeah, I was yeah. really struck by that story. It sort of suddenly it felt like, oh, we're in a slightly different space in this book where you're really <laughs> lighting a fire. Well, I wanted that to be the thing. I mean, I think people end up at Buddha centres because, as you say, they resonate with something earlier in their life. They knew something. I just remembered there, actually, been reading it. I was, oh, I suppose actually early books that I read and loved again, Ursula Le Guin is quite a big touchstone for me. And you know, reading those kind of early stories about Earthsea and the dragons and then reading actually her later when she returns to that world as a, a sort of eco-feminist and writes a very different take on it. And the dragons were the thing that mattered most to me as a grown-up and as a kid. And the dragon in that story or the naga or whatever it is, the sort of slightly malevolent being, which was good to recast, like just to make it not malevolent, just something else to be absorbed. Yeah, that sort of felt important. There is a lot of dharma, I think, in the book. Like, I should be really careful and give them a really good, solid grounding and everything from the threefold way to the four noble truths to the five precepts to the noble eightfold path. You know, it's all in there. But certainly towards the end, I was kind of a bit aware, I suppose, of the yanas, the first three yanas, and then the ekayana, which is now the ekayana. For anybody who doesn't know what that means, is a term that sometimes gets used for this phase of Buddhist history. Probably a bit premature for us to give our own phase of a name, but there you go. Yeah, the one. The one vehicle. Yes, sorry, that's that's helpful, the one vehicle. And we've got access to the whole of Buddhist history and all of the stories and all of the images, and there are good things about that. I'm sure there are not good things about that. But it is the case that we do. And I felt quite a strong duty, again, to try and be as even-handed about that as I could. But in that last chapter, in a way, it's the bit where you get to loosen a bit and say, well, now you're going to fly the nest. Now you're going to go out into the world. And specifically, it is about your relationships to other people and what you've got to contribute. And it's good to suggest to people that it's okay to set fire to some of the ideas that they grew up with. Mm. I certainly did. I'm sure you did. Yeah. Mm. 
Wow. Well, in a way, we've gone a little bit through the book. I wonder if there's anything, anything that you really want to say that you haven't said yet about the book or its, its afterlife? Actually, I have a question for you. I'm interested in us specifically having this conversation. We know each other a bit, and you're now a very kind of, I was going to say, respectable publisher. <laughs> you're like a, I am. <laughs> you're, well, you're, a, you're, a, you're kind of, um, you're holding a respectable brand and you're injecting it with all sorts of new life and vitality, which I'm sort of in awe of. And you read this book. It was interesting for me as a Chiratna or member to write a book not for Chiratna's own publishing house or even for a Triana audience. A lot of what I do is facing a sort of Triana audience. I found it quite liberating in a certain way just to step outside of my own garden, as it were, for this. Mm. I'm curious how you found reading a book by someone you know who's a fellow ward member but not written for our usual context. Was there anything particular struck you about it as a publisher or as a practitioner? Or... Oh, well, in a way, Wendell's Publications has a very specific remit. It's, in effect, it's Buddhist non-fiction and we don't publish directly. We don't publish children's books, we don't publish poetry, and we don't publish biography, or certainly we don't publish new poetry or biography. And that's been the editorial policy. So one one thing I'm aware of is just actually we can do with lots of other books. You know, Wintour's Publications doesn't have to be the only place that's publishing these books. I'm really glad that there are lots of very creative writers about who are writing. So actually, one of the things we're going to be doing soon is increasingly doing our own podcasts. But also we're starting a little sort of community notice board to point to people who might be coming to Wintour's Publications, them to other books like yours. And, you know, I can think of off the top of my head, I can think of like eight or nine other books that'd be really good to point to that are really good books that we're not publishing. So partly, I think we should be part of a greater network of referencing each other and and building up a nice dialogue about books. I'm interested in all books. So that's one part of the answer. I think there's a sort of spirit about Tree Ratna that's informed by, traditionally, we talk about it as the sort of the six emphases, you know, the ecumenism and this very strong emphasis on the relational dimension of practice and the importance of sangha, not just as a location, but as a vehicle for practice, the sort of idea of being a true individual, all of these sort of elements that shape something of what we're doing. So I think particularly after Sagarachita's death, we're faced with a task at the moment of keeping alive the best and the spirit of something that we've inherited in languages and for people and in contexts that haven't yet been addressed. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be doing. I think we're doing a little bit more of it increasingly in what we've been doing, that we'll keep doing that. And I just think it's great that other people are doing it as well. I don't think the job is to sort of police who writes so how anything gets written, I think the job is to have really creative, integral work that holds some of those values in how it's done. So you're not writing for tree writing, you're not using the shorthands and the jargons that we sometimes get to use in the Sangha. We don't have a lot of younger people coming to our Buddhist centers. We don't have a lot of experience really in teaching younger people on the whole in Tree Ratna. So I think this is great. And I, you know, I, I think it works both ways. You've done this thing and I'm really hoping that it will help centers where younger people are coming in to have means that are appropriate and skillful and inclusive to welcome people into our community or kids or nibblings or yeah. So, <laughs> so in a way, you know, what you wrote was not the usual sort of tree ratna writing. But 
on the one hand, it feels very deeply imbued with something of the spirit of it. And the other, it's an expansion to more of all beings. And that makes me very happy. That's nice to hear, because I think one of the experiences I was interested in at the end of the book was, did I think the the language we have in our community and the way we approach the Dharma was a natural fit for the audience. And actually, a lot of it was. A lot of it was. It was quite easy, even though it's good to avoid inwardly facing language. A lot of it felt quite natural. And I suppose on the one hand, when Sanger actually was doing his translation in his generation of Buddhism, it was controversial. Mm. And yet now it seems completely basic, awareness and kindness, right? Mm. It's not really, it's not actually that controversial, but you know, nonetheless, that role we're in as a further generation trying to faithfully receive and faithfully pass on the Dharma, there is translation involved in it and there is trying to attend to that spirit again. You asked me a question, actually. You said there was anything I wanted to say and I remembered one of the questions you sent me as a kind of thing we might talk about was around the story of the Buddha and the monk who has dysentery, which again is represented in the book in another different way, a sort of first-person narrative by the, the trainee monk who's observing this happening and then deciding to leave the Buddha and go back to his village and make a contribution. When I was thinking about that story, I think you'd said something in your notes like, is there a bit of a message for Mm-hmm. what kids can do now in the world we live in. And I was thinking, well, it is a bit strange, actually, a story like that, given the news just now, you know, given the, the horror of the war mm-hmm. conflict around Russia. And then thinking about the backdrop of a world still quite strongly at war, lots of long-running civil wars running in various places. I was thinking about across Africa and Sudan and Central African Republic and places like that, which don't get much coverage and are largely ignored. But, you know, with Ukraine on our minds at the moment so much and in the media. I was kind of curious yesterday thinking, does that story address the helplessness that a lot of us feel? I feel this week while reading the news, I'm just like, there's nothing I can do. I can give some money. I can, you know, reflect on the Dharma. But I sort of eventually got back to thinking, well, the thing of the Buddha in that story is just absolutely demonstrating that if you're just practicing awareness and practicing kindness Mm. to one person, Mm. if everyone's doing that, What's happening in Ukraine is impossible. Yeah. Putin is impossible because it doesn't arise. I suppose that's the great thing of conditionality, right? It doesn't arise. I hope that's the thing that teenagers would take away from it, that they have agency around that at least. Yeah. They may have all sorts of really painful external things to deal with, lots of internal anxiety to learn to live with, etc. But they do have that agency around what they do. Can they practice awareness with the person in front of them, with themselves in the mirror? Yeah. Kindness. Same thing. So trying to build that through the stories and in the meditations. In a way, it's not that complicated. Buddhism for teenagers is not very complicated. Like Buddhism for everyone else. (laughs) Awareness and (laughs) kindness, just to the nth degree, just keep doing that and it'll be fine. Well, I think it even goes further than that in in the sense of non-splitting. You know, after the war, whatever that is, people will need to live together again. So in another way of thinking about sort of karma and karma vipaka, the fruits of previous conditions and the conditions that we can now affect. At the moment, we have a situation which is the fruit of previous conditions, so we can't undo those conditions, but what conditions can we put in place going forward You know, on the basis of hate is never resolved by hate? But that's mm. really, really difficult, isn't it? It's very simple yeah. and it's very difficult. And it's very difficult in the fact that none of us can do any one act in any one time and place that's adequate to the degree of suffering that we're aware of. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that thing of when you're a teenager, at least I remember being a teenager, and it's a combination of an identity that's already formed from ages ago, even as a teenager, swimming into focus and swimming into view for you and to other people, which can be excruciating, like being seen by other people and all that that can evoke. And also your burgeoning sense that you can actually have some influence over it, that you can actually shape it. And all the kind of identities that we construct out of that or are constructed for us socially or whatever it is, everyone can adopt an identity around awareness and kindness. Nobody's excluded from that. And on that basis, you know, there's nothing we don't have in common. Yeah. Maybe when human beings are teenagers, they're particularly receptive to that. I wish I'd had a book like this when I was growing up. There were good things about growing up as a Catholic. There were good things about the stories that served me and served even this book well. But there's something about, I didn't have a training in taking awareness and kindness seriously. Yeah. At least not explicitly. People did, very kind people in my life, including clergy, I'm sure would have modeled some of that. But I think it's helpful as a teenager to be pointed directly to something. And that was one of the prime objectives of the book was to point directly to Buddhism, but try and give a pretty broad sense of it with lots of room for a teenager to run around in. It's a big field and you're invited. Yeah. I think one of the things that differentiates Buddhism from other ways of thinking or traditions or trainings that might have the same explicit values say, is actually the capacity to step-by-step increase our capacities around both of those things. Because it's hard if there isn't a path. You know, you 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 can say love thy neighbor as till the cows come home. But how do you do that? You know, how do you you do do that? And how do you do that internally and externally? You know, and how do you do that for the born and the unborn, the not yet born, to use the Karaniya Metta Sutta as an example? So I think that's the other thing that's the thread through your book is not just those are the values but also there's a path that you lead very playfully and creatively and enjoyably through yeah, the development mm. of mindfulness and uh, that opening from the beginning is kindness. Kindness is accessible in a way to all people at all times and this is how you grow it, this is how you connect with it, this is how you allow it yeah. to unfold. One last thing is, I remember somebody telling me when I first got involved with Buddhism, I don't know where this quote comes from, I'm sure somebody could tell us, the the Buddha apparently said, explicit dharmas are more important than implicit dharmas, (laughs) meaning presumably that really clear teaching is better than not clear teaching because there's less room for misunderstanding. And that's been a kind of koan I've turned around in my mind my whole life since becoming a Buddhist, particularly involved with poetry. Poetry is nothing if not implicit dharmas, at least I think good poetry is discuss no time um, but one of the things I enjoyed doing particularly for a teenage audience was bringing some of the characters back in later stories like little easter eggs like it doesn't say this is the same character but it clearly is mm. and Mal from the story that I read at the start of the podcast reappears later in this sci-fi story where it's a sort of evocation of Indra's net the interconnected nature of the whole cosmos in a way and the points of jeweled light the wish-fulfilling jewel that that connects all these lines of light together and having that sort of thing where you can have an explicit dharma that talks about a buddhist view of conditionality or a buddhist view of arising or interdependence but then also you can have a vast starry sky and you can have mal as a grown-up who's moved on from wanting to know all the answers to being a scientist Mm -hmm. who is just excited at the unknownness of the universe and then well what happens something happens they disappear (laughs) again I think that sort of sense of story 
story carries all of this. And yeah, I think the story of the Dharma, the story of practice is probably the best story you could give to a teenager. Um, it's got so much permission in it and so much space. Mm. Yeah, so much autonomy, so much relationship. Come and try it out for yourself, folks. Yes, come and try it out. Yes, so you can, I don't know, we should plug the book. I suppose we should plug the book, shouldn't we? I'm not very good at this. I'm good at it with other people, but I feel slightly embarrassed talking about it. <clears throat> yeah, you can buy it largely on Amazon. You can go to Buddhism for Teens. We'll put something in the notes, I'm sure, for this. There's also a page on my own website, which is where they originally came across me. There's a page dedicated to Buddhism for Teens. It's rascal.press. Rascal.press. You can go there and download a sample chapter and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, well done. I really hope that a lot of people engage with the book and find it helpful and entertaining and good. Amazing that you found time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm slightly amazed to find time to do it as well. I think the rigour of getting up at 5.30 every morning and writing for an hour and a half before starting work. I don't know how many times I want to do it like that, but it was a good experience to do it like that this time. So if I'm going to do a next book, I think I'll try and find another slightly more spacious model for it than this one we'll talk <laughs> <laughs> i promise i wasn't fishing <laughs> so thank you chandradasa for appearing on your own podcast this has been a lovely lovely conversation i'll say goodbye now my name's dama mega and i'm work for wintles publications and come over to our website wintlespublications.com in the next couple of weeks where we'll be launching our own podcast series starting with an interview with the scholar and monk analeo on the mindfulness secular and buddhist Ooh, so, how exciting <laughs> but thank you very much chandradasa and all the best with your book Thank you, Dominica. Yeah, lovely to see you. Lovely to talk about it with you. 